All right. All right. Let's do this because yeah. Ryan, Ryan doesn't talk enough during the day these days. Well, I, I just ask questions and Scalabrini answers them. That, that's my main role on our show. <laughs> we'll give you more room to talk on this one. <laughs> in basketball analysis with over 70 years combined experience this is the bob ryan and jeff goodman podcast nba some college a little bit of everything you know what can i say but it wasn't going to happen here with him i was okay with it because it wasn't about talent i didn't think all right let's, let's get right to it all right welcome in another edition of the ryan and goodman podcast uh, bob ryan's got his around the horn shirt ready to go today and uh, we're joined by uh, somebody else from the Commonwealth, uh, although he's not in the Commonwealth right now, and that is Ryan McDonough, uh, former uh, Phoenix Suns general manager, now media star with, with Sirius, and uh, unfortunately- Radio, Radio.com, Jeff, Radio.com. Radio.com, and you've got to work with Scalabrini every day. Is this, is this true? Every day. In fact, it's actually worse than that. I have to work with them twice a day. because we, we do two shows. We do a live show from noon to 1 o'clock Eastern, and then we record a mini podcast, audio only, late at night after the games are over. So, uh, yeah, just when I think I'm done with Scal, I'm really not done until my head hits the pillow, and then I have to see the guy again the next morning. That's ridiculous. I mean, honestly, like, I don't know how much you make, but it, it can't be enough for that much Scal per day. <laughs> That's a lot of Scalabrini. Uh, for those of you who see my home office set up, we got a, a signed Scalabrini picture over my right shoulder. Uh, that cost $22, Bob and Jeff. It showed up from a shady office park in China uh, that I'm not even sure was legitimate. I asked Daryl Morey to investigate uh, the source of it, given his ties to, the, to China. Uh, and then also this hat. People think it's a Celtics hat. Uh, it's really not. It's a Scalabrini, uh, <laughs> you, you know, white mamba uh, with the leprechaun logo. So, uh, you know, some people spend their money productively. Uh, I guess I personally don't want final item of a white <laughs> mamba mug. So, um, you know, that that's it's kind of a running gag on the show. You, you know, you never know when I show up with random Brian Scalabrini memorabilia that I think literally nobody else has in the world because nobody else no, wants it. Undoubtedly. Uh, I have to lay a very important item out there before we get started, and that is that um, – Ryan McDonough is the first major sports executive whose christening I attended. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't quite remember that day at, at, at his house at 19. Uh, well, I won't give you the address, but uh, his house, a mile from my house. But indeed, Ryan, I was there for your christening. I've been Incredible. waiting to pop this one on the world for ever since you got that son's job. And I never found the proper form. I'm speechless. I don't even know what to say to this. But, you know, I'm, I'm you know, so I, well, I've kind of watched the lag grow up. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Jeff, yeah, one, one final thought uh, there, not maybe not a final thought, but one thought there, Jeff, is when the Boston Globe was the predominant sports section in the country, preeminent sports section in the country, um, they had the best in the business in every single field. Uh, Bob in the NBA, my father, Will McDonough in the NFL. They had Bud Collins uh, on tennis, Peter Gammons on baseball. It was a murderer's row of a newspaper. Uh, and you know, maybe their two biggest stars, uh, Bob Ryan and Will McDonough, both lived in Hingham, Massachusetts, uh, a mile or two from each other. Um, you know, Jeff, my father's passed away. My mother still uh, lives in the town. Uh, so that's what it was. You know, people, these guys are on national TV, and Bob's got his ESPN around the horn shirt. Uh, but when they, you know, went to the Globe, they went to the same office, and then when they came home, they only a few miles apart in a quiet suburban town south of Boston. Not only that, Ryan, but our, uh, in the final stages of my of, of Will's you know tenure at the Globe, our cubicles were adjacent. We were next to each other. And I wrote about this when he passed. That one of my favorite, and I, this is not hyperbole. One of my favorite times of the year was football draft time, and he would oh, no no playoff time, NFL playoffs, and he would get on the phone to all the to the all the other GMs or, or or mucky mucks and and do his preview stories and he had access to everybody. Everybody returned his call starting with Pete Rozelle. You know that. And and I would listen to these conversations. And he would start off with like any, I don't know, just pick a name and and, and he'd go, Yeah, how's that juggernaut of yours? You know? I mean he, <laughs> he was so and I love these I I'm only hearing one end of the conversation, but they were priceless conversations to hear. Uh there was nobody like him, folks. This man's uh, uh, tentacles in the world and Boston sports were unprecedented. And uh, yeah, but anyway, it was, a, it was you know we were friends. Everybody was a friend. But uh, I, I literally worked next to him, and 
And, uh, you know, I treasure those moments. So, Ryan, was, was it your father or Bob Bryan who drove you away from the media industry at, at first <laughs> and into, uh, in, into, you know, executive land? It wasn't, in fact, driving me away from the media industry. It was driving me away from print journalism because th this is kind of eerie in hindsight. And Bob knows this. He, he knew, knew my dad as well as anybody and kind of how forward thinking he was. We all know how outspoken he was. But if you go back, guys, and look 20 or 25 years ago, uh, Will McDonough said the newspapers are a dying industry. Uh, the Internet is the future. You know, the Internet. And this was, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, so he was ahead of it. I actually was a journalism major. I went to the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. I thought I wanted to be a play-by-play -play guy. Uh, I tried to do that in minor league baseball for a year with a double-A team in Zebulon, North Carolina, called the Carolina Mudcats. And then I listened to myself, and I listened to my older brother, Sean, and I said, I'm nowhere near that guy's stratosphere. Now, it's probably a bad comparison because, as you guys know, he's one of the best in the business. And, um, you know, just happened, worked out. I moved home with my parents. The Celtics got sold to their current ownership group, Wick Grosbeck and Steve Paliuka, and they gave me a job in the video room in 2003. And uh, I kind of grew from there, especially when Danny Ainge came in. So that's how I ended up on the team side for 15-plus years. Uh, but now I am back on the media side, which is why I'm fortunate enough to do the show uh, with my two friends, you two guys. Yeah, I remember the first day. When, when you were in power with the Suns, could you objectively uh, review those dookies? <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think. We, we didn't have a ton of Duke guys, um, although I think, Bob, I'm in, I'm in more trouble actually at my alma mater, University of North Carolina, uh, because not only did we trade Kendall Marshall, we then received him in a later trade, and then we waved him. So Kendall's <laughs> the, one of the all-time, at least in recent history, popular Tar Heels, and he's a good dude, too. I felt badly about it. As, as you know, you have to be uh, somewhat cutthroat and ruthless making these decisions. Uh, but after that, I was like, shoot, am I still going to get good tickets? Like, you know, Roy Williams, to some extent, controls the tickets when you go scouting Chapel Hill. Uh, oh, so really? if I am in that position again, I expect to be like in the upper deck in the back of the Smith Center somewhere because of what I did to Kendall Marshall. That's an old Red Auerbach trick, by the way. Mm -hmm. Banish the visiting writer he doesn't like up on a you know up in the on the third balcony. That, that was an old Red trick. Hey, the, the first time I think we met Ryan, I think it's it's correct was in Portland, Maine, and I think you were you were Danny's driver maybe that day. I don't remember who we were there to watch. Was it like Darrell Wright or somebody like – felt like it was a prep school game in Portland, Maine. Am I wrong? Do I remember that wrong? No, I, th I think you're right, Jeff. And when I started the league in 2003, as you guys know, teams were able to draft players right out of high school. And we did that in the Celtics front office under Danny Ames, Ainge's leadership. Uh, the first three years, the only three years we were eligible to draft high school players, we drafted three in a row, uh, Kendrick Perkins in 03. Al Jefferson in 04, and then Gerald Green in 05, and then they changed the rule in, in 06, and you couldn't do that anymore. Uh, but I bring it up, Jeff, because you know, you, you were there. You were one of the pioneers of the high school recruiting, and, you know, will guys go to college? Will they go straight to the NBA? Um, and, and that was such a difficult time as far as information gathering, right? Because as an executive, you know, if you're doing business with Duke, North Carolina, Kansas, Kentucky, you see the same people over and over again, year after year, the head coach, the assistant coaches, the trainer, the sports information guy. So you're able to build a network and get good intel and good information about those prospects. Uh, when you're in a high school gym or a neutral gym with a bunch of high school teams or AU teams playing, uh, you don't know the people. You don't know if they're on the take or if they like the kid or hate the kid. You, you know, so it was really hard to get good information, uh, not only as far as, you know, intel on character and work ethic, uh, but also on statistics, on medical. Uh, it was kind of the Wild West to some extent. Uh, that's why personally I'll be really curious to see if the NBA um, goes back to that model because it does open up a whole new can of worms for NBA teams in particular. All right, let's get down to business. Let's get down to the, the, uh, the big news. And, and, and there has been big news already today on Thursday coming out of nowhere. Uh, nobody saw this coming. Steve Nash, the new coach of the Brooklyn Nets, like it just sounds so weird right now. Um, how's it going to work, Ryan? I mean, Kyrie, obviously KD and Kyrie had to sign off on this thing, right? I mean, we, we know that, but it may look good on the surface with Kyrie because obviously he's going to be tutored by one of the greatest at his position of all time. But this guy has no coaching experience and he's now coaching two of the biggest egos in the NBA, period. 
Boy, Jeff, you, you make great points. And I think there are more extreme strengths and weaknesses about this job, reasons to do it, reasons not to do it, than any I can remember in recent NBA history. On the plus side, on the one hand, you have Kevin Durant, who when he's healthy is arguably the best scorer. I think he is the best scorer in the league. He may be the best player in the league, um, but he's also on the negative side. He's coming off a torn Achilles, which as a 15-plus year former executive is the last injury. If you talk to any sports science staff in the NBA today, any team doctor or trainer, they will say they'd rather have a guy uh, tear his ACL or have a significant knee injury, anything else but a blown Achilles. That's the last one they want. And that's what Kevin Durant is now coming off of. Um, so, so that's, you know, some strengths and weaknesses there. Uh, Kyrie Irving, you know, maybe the most polarizing player in the NBA today. We all see his individual ball handling talent, his scoring brilliance. Uh, we also see uh, the mood swings, the, 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 the sh- sudden shifts in behavior and play. Um, so it's a tough one. I mean, it's a tough one. Again, a lot of strengths. They, they aren't a destination market. They have a brand new owner in Joe Sy, who I've heard very good things about and is one of the wealthiest owners in the NBA and seems very willing to spend and do whatever it takes to win. Uh, they have some talented players on the roster led by Durant and Irving. Um, but how do guys like Karis Levert, who was great in the bubble, uh, Spencer Dinwiddie, who played terrific, especially before Kyrie arrived and then when Kyrie was out of the lineup this year, how do they um, react to all that? And guys, what, what I keep coming back to, because I, you know, being the GM of the Phoenix Suns for five plus years, I've, I spent a little bit of time around Steve Nash. Not a lot, but a little between there. And also, after I got fired by the Suns, I went and visited the Warriors and a little around him a little bit there. Um, the thing I keep coming back to, guys, is he's a really nice guy. And you guys know that, but the NBA, is, as Bob knows as well as anybody, can be a dog-eat-dog in the locker room. So that's the question I have with Steve. Not the basketball acumen or the know-how. He obviously has that. But is he willing to put his foot down and command respect in the locker room? Uh, I don't know. It remains to be seen. And he certainly has some strong personalities to deal with in Brooklyn's locker room. There's another aspect of this that I, that's going to materialize that I know it has already in one source and he won't be the only one. The potential blowback about the fact that uh, he is a Caucasian without experience, Hall of Famer, of course, and there are qualified black assist people, including one who's won a championship, and who I'm sure is going to get a job. Uh, I'm betting Tyler winds up in Philly, but, but yeah. you know, there are others that are sitting out there, Mark Jackson. Uh, I'm not a big particular fan of his, but he certainly has credentials that you can't ignore. Jason right. Kidd. What were the credentials, and, Bob? What were Mark Jackson's credentials as a coach? They were just – they're average. Like, well, yeah, but, I heard Stephen A. Smith on this shit, and, and I'm not right. lying. I'm just saying it's going to hear – look, I'm not a big fan of Mark Jackson, and I always want to – I got myself in trouble by, by, by overreacting to Mark Jackson, uh, to the replacement, you know, of, of Kerr. I thought he took him to water, couldn't make him drink. I, blah, blah, blah. But you're going to hear about it. It's going to be, it's going to be in, in the climate we're living in, in the world of social justice that we're talking about, it will not be ignored. And, and Stephen, I'll name the name. Stephen A. won't be the only one. He's just, he just happened to have the forum today first. That's all. A lot of people went against him right away. Jay Will, Damian Woody. Most people are looking at this and, and saying, listen, Steve Nash, one of the greatest ever. Unbelievable basketball mind. And ultimately, KD and Kyrie signed off on this. Oh, it's really interesting, though. Yeah, I, I, of course they had to. Uh, and, and Ryan, uh, just because – how did he uh, – well, it, the, the one – it was just out of nowhere. I mean, I read the New York papers every day. I literally read the posts six out of seven days, every day but Sunday, and I now I go online if I want to – I read – the Times is no good for news anymore, but the Post is your news source. It, the name was never once mentioned. Never. never. I mean, this is – and this is very similar to when Danny hired Brad. That came – no one on the outside had the slightest idea that that was going to happen. But in this case, you had all the speculation about the Ty Lues and about the others. How, Ryan, how do you – how do you – you have meetings in the dead at night, like in, in, in uh, Watergate, uh, in the parking garage? How do, you, how do you have these meetings that people don't know about? Or how do you have this contact, you know, that people – nobody gets a whiff of? It's based on relationships and trust, Bob, as so much is in the NBA and pro sports in general. And I bring that up because uh, here in Phoenix, I still live in Arizona. And, you know, being GM of the Phoenix Suns for five plus years, you know the history of the franchise. And Sean Marks, the GM of the Brooklyn Nets, and Steve Nash were not only teammates, they're very close personal friends. And so, guys, I don't think, uh, without revealing too much, I know that teams have reached out to Steve Nash, multiple teams have reached out to Steve Nash in the past about uh, either being a head coach, being in the front office, 
Obviously, he was a consultant in Golden State. Uh, the, now, the interesting thing there was, um, keep in mind, I visited the Warriors the past couple of years and spent a lot of time around their team uh, in, in preseason and training camp, things like that. Um, Nash did not live in the Bay Area. He lived in L.A. and commuted. So he was only around a few days a month. You know, it's not like he was there. Uh, you guys know what it's like to be a head coach or an assistant coach. It's a 30-day uh, a month job minimum. You know, if you, if you even have one day off, you're lucky. Um, Nash kind of came and went uh, and had, did some broadcasting. He's involved in ownership of a Spanish soccer team. So he's a pretty diversified guy. Um, so on the one hand, he hasn't been in the trenches as a coach and grinded, you know, for 15 plus hours a day. That has not been the job. Uh, now, on the other hand, I, I think the good news for Brooklyn Nets fans, uh, and, and one of the things that I imagine was attractive to Joe Sy, the owner, and Sean Marks, the GM, was Steve Nash doesn't need this job. As you guys know, he doesn't need the money. He made a lot of money as a player. He's a smart guy. He's got, you know, the broadcasting, the soccer team. He's got endorsement deals. So to me, it shows he really wants to do this. He, he's committed to it. He wants it. Um, and I think, you know, that there are the issues that you guys brought up. And I, and I agree with the issues, um, but I also agree with Steve Nash taking the job because, as you guys know, at the end of the day, talent wins in the NBA, and they have one of the most talented rosters uh, in the Eastern Conference, maybe in the entire NBA. So if I were a head coach and I could pick and choose my first job, I would take the most talented team available and then hope I could make the egos work out uh, rather than try to take a less talented team and build it because, um, guys, to use the same example from the same franchise, Kenny Atkinson just did that, and look what happened to him. You know, he went with a rebuild team he did a great job the players got better and then he got fired and Nash comes in to try to take him to the next level well he would we, would he be advised or is he beyond this state to find a veteran consigliere type of guy that has coached in the NBA and might just he be able to maybe bounce things off uh, which has been a traditional thing so often in the NBA I remember when Chuck Daly went from Penn directly uh, to the 76ers first thing we did was to hire Jack McMahon and to get to get yeah. a wise old head and, and um, I don't know, but he's Steve Nash. I mean, I, I, his credentials are unquestioned. But, I mean, I just wondering, do you think that would be an advisable thing or, do you, or, or not? I do, Bob. But keep in mind, he's going to retain a guy on staff in Jock Vaughn who now has a decent amount of head coaching experience between Orlando and recently oh, with Brooklyn. Uh, so, so that helps as well. You know, Jock's going to be his lead assistant. Uh, but I think there is a step beyond that because uh, Steve is a brand new coach and Jock is still a relatively young coach. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I think there's a guy, whether it's, um, you know, doing what they did in uh, L.A. with the Lakers. Frank Vogel's a more experienced head coach. Uh, but as you know, they got a lot of experience on that bench with Lionel Hollins, uh, with, with Jason Kidd, with, with Phil Handy, who's been a long time, very successful assistant. Um, so I, I'd look at something like that. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a bench assistant. One of the other models in the NBA guys is bringing uh, like a coaching consultant or coaching advisor, uh, a guy that you guys know you've been around the league for a long time. Gordy Chiesa is a guy who's uh, maybe not a household name, but revered by coaches. He, he was around the Jazz with Jerry Sloan and those guys for a long time. Uh, so somebody in that role who maybe is not on the bench, is not in the trenches, um, but can come to practice, can come to the games, and maybe take a step back in being outside the room, look at the team and the coaching staff objectively and say, guys, here's what I think you're doing well, and here's what I think you can improve on, uh, speaking from a very experienced perspective. In the abstract, now, just in the abstract, the idea of a, the guy, Vaughn, sticking, sticking around as the assistant, that surprising to you? It's a little bit surprising to me. And, and I give a lot of credit to Jacques Vaughn for this because, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, he has to subvert his ego, in my opinion, to do that. You know, any, anybody who has been the, the, head, the head coach uh, now as an assistant, I, I think that's a lot easier to do with a different franchise. That, that happens all the time, right? You know, if, if with the Phoenix Suns, uh, if I got demoted instead of fired, I would have been more upset about that. You know, just, all right, like maybe I'll go back and work with another team somewhere in a job like I had in Boston or whatever uh, that's more palatable from an ego perspective. Uh, so I, I give Jacques Vaughn a lot of credit. Uh, I think Steve Nash will rely on him heavily because not only has he coached the team, in my opinion, very successfully, guys, um, keep in mind, one of the things we cover on our Scallon Pal show on radio.com is some of the sports betting angle. And I bring it up because the over under for the Brooklyn Nets going into the bubble in Orlando in the eight seeding games was one and a half. And, and I didn't know if they were going to win two games. Um, as you guys know, they were five and three and they were a Karis Levert step back away from going Six and two without, what, five out of their top six mm -hmm. or six out of their top seven players? Uh, and that joking. was Jacques Vaughn. Jeff and I were joking on, uh, about uh, the, the roster that they went in there with, you know, yeah. about who's kidding who, how they're going to win a game. And, and, and they certainly achieved, and some of that credit has to go to Jacques Vaughn. I mean, he really did a good job. And um, so I, mean, I just find it very interesting that he would stay. And you're right, that tells, tells me a lot about Jacques Vaughn. I mean, to me, so I mean, 
Like yeah, that. and I wonder if it would be a short stay, Bob, just for, for, to the extent that there are other head coaching jobs open, um, you know, and I think Jack Vaughn would be a candidate for some of those. You know, if I'm in the Chicago Bulls front office or the New Orleans Pelicans front office in particular, uh, two younger, talented teams that, you know, need to build it, I, he'd be on the short list of guys I, I personally would want to talk to as an executive. The wait is finally over. Football is back. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. BetOnline is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on everything imaginable this season. Game spreads, totals, to team, player, and coaching props, BetOnline gives you more options to wager than any place online. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on win, division, and championship futures today. Head up to BetOnline online today. Take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. All right, so I was going to go back to the games last night, but let's stick on this. While we're on it uh, and we're talking about the Pelicans, uh, David Griffin got a huge decision to make. I I actually thought maybe Billy Donovan would be in the mix for this, and I still think he could be. I I know Griff liked him uh, in the past, and Billy Donovan right now without a contract, uh, which shocks the hell out of me for everything he did this past season. Uh, He and Chris Paul bringing those young guys along. By far, to me, his best coaching job he's done in the NBA. And now he may be jettisoned uh, after that. Uh, It surprises me. What do you think happens in OKC first, Ryan, with Donovan? And then who do you think could be in the mix uh, for the Pelicans job? Other than we know Ty Lue, if he doesn't, you know, he'll be in the mix, I think, if, if it's not done with Philly. Yeah, great questions, Jeff. Billy Donovan was my choice for coach of the year. I thought he did the best job of any coach in the NBA. And I always view the award relative to expectations, right? So, uh, you know, Mike Budenholzer and the Bucks had the best record. Bud won it a year ago. Uh, he was deserving because if you think it's, you know, the best team, then obviously you just go by the record. Um, but nobody, I think, had Oklahoma City in this position where they're taking a, uh, you know, Houston Rockets team who was one of the championship favorites, or at least in that small group of, you know, five or so contenders prior to the season, uh, that he has them in a possession by possession game seven down the stretch uh, with Chris Paul and Steven Adams and then really around those guys in Gallinari they had a very young inexperienced roster I mean playing Shea Gildas Alexander and Lugens Dort who was phenomenal last night in game seven uh, Darius Baisley who was working at New Balance last year you know they they really <laughs> overachieved you know with what they had on the roster so I, I I understand that Billy is is catching a lot of flack today for his late game decision making and I understand why we criticism criticized him, excuse me, on our show as well. But that shouldn't take away from what he did over time. And that's what I look at, guys. It's any individual decision can work out great or can work out poorly. But what did you do over time? What Billy Donovan's done over time is establish a program in OKC. Uh, Yeah, so I think he'd be an excellent choice um, in New Orleans. And guys, I think really, uh, not to go off on a tangent, but I think the pandemic and what's happening now in our country with the, the, you know, the financial uncertainty and all that is exposing some uh, interesting decision making in the NBA where Nate Mc. Millen does an excellent job, in my opinion, in Indiana. His best player, arguably, and Demata Sabonis can't play in the bubble. Jeremy Lamb is also out with a torn ACL. He gets fired against a you know Miami team that may be the best one in the entire Eastern Conference uh, right now. And then same thing happened, you know, with Billy last night with his contract ending. You say, wait a minute, what more could those guys have done with their roster? Uh, but as as you know, Jeff and Bob, you know this better than anybody. You've been doing this a lot longer than Jeff and I have. It's an unfair business, and I think uh, to some extent, for whatever reason, to me, it seems like the pandemic and the financial uncertainty is exposing some of that where some of these decisions uh and i'll feel this way if, if donovan gets let go you, you scratch your head and say wait a minute that, that, that's not fair that shouldn't have happened i'm just wondering i mean i'm just is there something going on between he and Presty? uh you know that we don't know about and, I, and I, that, that has happened in the past that, that you know, sam's we don't a know different that, dude sam's a different dude too so something happened. i don't know but it just it is it's not unprecedented but it's one of those circumstances that has you scratching your head as to why the guy didn't get an extension. No question. Yeah. So I know. So, now about last night. <laughs> no, I mean, we ready to go to last night? Yeah, whatever, whatever. Listen, take uh, control, I, Bob. Come on, Robert. Robert. Bring it, bring it. You're going to have to bear with me. Am I going to mount the soapbox and I'll yeah. shut up, okay? Not kiddingly, and I mean this, I've said this for decades. I really believe that at every level of basketball, from youth on, male, female, whatever, right from the – Biddy League, which used to the end, seventh game of the NBA Finals. The officials in question should be forced to take a quiz before every game, a one-question quiz. And, that, and the quest, quiz is, why am I here? And the answer, in my opinion, is 
to adjudicate the smooth flow of the game. Not to show me off, the, show off you know, every last sentence of the rule book. You have to have a feel, a common sense, intelligence, sense of everything about what's going on, when it is, when not that it is, what, what, what matters, what doesn't matter. And they blew it. And the last night in that, in that Miami game, and, I mean, and, and, that, and the thing about it is that they got it right in the, by, by two wrongs making a right. In other words, after the terrible call uh, on Dragic, who, who came perfectly in the plane, did not get in the step in the space of the shooter. They made a worse call, putting Butler on the line, and he wins the game with the, the word, when you after the shot. I don't want to hear about after the shot. A little brush on the body after the shot. It didn't impair the shot at one iota, and it should have been the end of story for any intelligent referee. And so two wrongs made a right because the team that should have won did win in that, in that safe set, although they certainly squandered a lead. I understand that. And what was Butler thinking in the corner? That we're going to get to that now. Uh, as one of the dumbest veteran moves I have ever seen in 51 years of covering NBA. Jimmy you Butler. You throw the ball back underneath your own basket? With two timeouts in his pocket, doesn't call a timeout, and throws the, the no-no pass of the century. Okay, I'm off. <laughs> what do you think of the calls, Ryan? Uh, well, look, I, I think we all know that makeup calls happen in the NBA, but I, I don't remember ever seeing uh, a, a horrible call with a few seconds left and then a makeup call to decide the game at the other end. I mean, that's, you know, you, if they happen in the second quarter uh, of a January game, I think we all say, okay, yeah, that, that is what it is. But but in the final, excuse me, in, in the conference semifinals uh, to decide a playoff game in a series where two teams, in my opinion, are relatively evenly matched, uh, you know, I, I was not comfortable with that. And one of the points Scalabrini made on our Scalampel show, guys, that I thought was was a great one, especially when you watch that game first last night and then you watch the late game in particular between OKC and Houston. Um, why are shooters in the NBA so protected now where if anybody takes out like a feather duster and, and, and pokes them a little bit, you know, and they flail, it's a foul. But then go back and watch the film of the last one minute last night from OKC in Houston. Guys, how many charges and flops and guys smacking into each other? And, you know, the ref swallowed their whistle there. But, but if, you, if you place a fingernail on a shooter and, and the guy moves it all or flails like he got shot, you know, by a cannon, uh, then it's an automatic foul. I, I just think there's a disconnect there where, wait a minute, you, you know, Chris Paul and James Harden, these guys, Stephen Adams, P.J. Tucker, are playing bumper cars, you know, in the fourth quarter of a game. Nothing yeah. is called, but, but if you breathe on a shooter, that is an automatic foul, even if it decides a playoff game. Which brings me to the Harden block, because I've been railing uh, throughout the playoffs about the incredible number of, of fouls, guys fouled make on the three. And, and, and you know, okay, it's the three is the currency now, I understand that. And yet uh, Harden did the right thing, you know, as it turned out. He took a chance. He, he made a perfect block. He didn't foul the guy, you know. He could have – he took a risk, took a huge risk. Yeah. But it, it worked. So I, I had to applaud that, you know. Then after he blocks the shot and, and Dort alertly tries to throw the ball off him, it goes between his legs. I, I got to give a little credit for dodging that, you know, through the five hole, you know. That was, a, I mean, that, that's a, that, that sequence, Ryan, I've you know, seen a lot of basketball. That, that's un, I've never seen a sequence like that at the end, end of a game, you know, to, to help decide a game. There was a lot of stuff that we never seen before, but, but it, it was a wild night of basketball. It was entertaining as all hell. It was dramatic. It wasn't pretty at times, but boy, you know, it kept you, kept us on the edge of our seats. That's for sure. Didn't it remind you guys of the NCAA tournament? I mean, that was not – Bob mentioned it. That was not typically how an NBA game ends. NBA games end with, with timeout, with another timeout, with a set play, with substitutions. Um, just the wild, free-flowing nature of yep. that last minute. Yes, there were a few timeouts. Uh, there was a controversial foul call that uh, benefited Houston, luckily, when – Gallinari, who was 29 for 29 in the series, missed a free throw. I think that's not being uh, talked about enough today, guys, that Gallinari missed that free throw, which would have cut the deficit to one. In my opinion, maybe given uh, OKC more of a lob threat at the rim in that situation to win the game. Um, mm -hmm. You know, he missed that shot. Uh, and also, I thought Gallinari turned down shots uh, in the game, throughout the game, that you know, OKC needed him to shoot, especially off the catch. Um, but I, br I bring it up because of uh, the finish, the wild finish. 
that doesn't really happen in the NBA where uh, it wasn't, you know, it was a competitive game, but it, w- it was not what I would call a good game from an execution standpoint in that uh, Billy Donovan who lost for OKC or even Mike D'Antoni who won on the sideline in Houston, I think feels real good about his team's late game execution on the stretch last night. I think part of it, honestly, maybe I'm crazy here, but I think part of why it's more um, dramatic and obviously with the NCAA tournament being a one and done, that adds to it and the underdogs against the favorites. But I also think it's in the NBA that you're able to advance the ball on, on, on timeouts in college. You've got those full court plays so often, right? They're taking the ball up, uh, you know, with a head of steam and you know, clocks running down. It's just, I, I never NBA understood the, the advancing the ball in the NBA. I don't, I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't understand why that hasn't been changed. You score the ball under the hoop. Why are we advancing it? For what? I'm sure the, you know, it's, it's very, of course, it came into play big time in 1976 in the famous triple overtime game, Westfall calling the time, getting the timeout call. But, um, yeah, I, I, the answer, I think the answer, the reason why, I'm guessing, is it, it, it gives a, a little bit more chance for the team behind it to, ca- to, to, to catch up. To, but why? To, like why, are you, why are I'm you moving saying, the ball all of a sudden? And I'm not – I'm not – I agree with you, Jeff, but I, I never, you know, I'm so used to it. I mean, that's the only game I've known in the NBA. Uh, you know, I have my hands in both worlds and all that. I got to ask uh, before we even, you know, in case we depart this uh, particular area of discussion, Ryan, is there anything about the Miami's success that surprises you at all? Or, would, or were you on the, kind of on the Miami bandwagon before this thing started? Yeah, I thought they would beat Indiana in the first round, especially without Sabonis. But I was impressed by how easily they handled the Pacers. Because as you guys know, even without Sabonis, the Pacers have a good team. You, you know, T.J. Warren, uh, our guy from the Phoenix Suns who got traded to Indiana, he played out of his mind, I thought, in the bubble. Um, and then, you know, with Victor Oladipo, Miles Turner, Brogdon, they have some good players. And, and I was impressed by how easily uh, Miami dispatched of Indiana in a 4-0 sweep. Um, but what's really stood out, guys, and, and, and I, I feel stronger about this now ever after having watched the first two games of the series, um, watching Milwaukee play against Miami, I know what the seeds are. I know what the regular season records say. I just think the Miami Heat are better. I think they're a better team. I think they have more uh, depth. I think they have more shooting. I think they have more versatility and ways to beat you. Because uh, so, when I look at the Milwaukee Bucks, they only have really three shot creators, in my opinion. They have Giannis, they have Chris Middleton, and Eric Bledsoe, who returned uh, with a strained hamstring and played. You know, I thought he was solid last night. Uh, but really, those three guys. So Miami can load up on three guys, um, whereas Milwaukee, um, who do you load up on? You know, Miami, now that they have the shooting with, no. with Duncan Robinson, and they have Tyler Harrow, and they have Kelly Olenek coming off the bench, um, Milwaukee defense as you guys know is designed to wall off the basket protect the rim go vertical protect the paint they're great at that but they've changed what they're trying to do defensively and not get torched by those guys on the three and I think that's allowing some driving lanes you know for for Jimmy Butler for Bam Adebayo Uh, so Bob that's a long-winded way of saying I don't think that anything that's happened in the first two games is a fluke in fact I expect Miami to win the series and advance to the Eastern Conference Finals because I firmly believe they're the better team well they're going to be the best team in the East I mean right now you're looking at it and you're saying they're probably the favorites to come out of the East because of, I think, how they're constructed, right? Their pieces fit so well together. And Jimmy Butler fits that, uh, that situation, that culture, right? That's per- it, it wasn't right for when Fred Hoiberg took over in Chicago, it wasn't the right coach for him, right? Then he bounced around in Philly. He aligns himself with Embiid. It's a mess already in Philly with the, the locker room and everything like that. But I think in Miami – Jimmy Butler being Jimmy Butler works because that's what Pat Riley is used to. That's what Spo wants. Um, and, and the pieces they put around those guys, Duncan Robinson, like you said, Tyler Hero, is fearless shooters. I mean, both of them, like coming from opposite ends of the earth, Kentucky and Williams College, but they both come in with like, I'm going to let it fly and I'm not going to worry about it. And, and I think the key in the series that, that, probably won't be talked about enough and hasn't, is, is Dragic and Bledsoe. I trust Dragic. I, I've never trusted and never will trust Eric Bledsoe to be on a team that can win a championship or compete for a championship, period. Ryan, for what you know or what you sense and or what your common sense and intelligence would tell you, uh, how much influence do you think Pat Riley exerts on a regular maybe even daily basis uh, in, in, in every aspect of, of how that team goes about its business. 
A lot, Bob. The culture for me with any organization starts from the top down. And at the very top, as you guys know, is ownership. Uh, And the Arison family, Mickey and Nick Arison, have empowered Pat to do that and supported Pat and back Pat. And and after doing this for 15 plus years, guys, with varying levels of success uh, over, you know, multiple organizations, um, that's the most important thing, honestly. And I think uh, if you look beyond Miami, who are the best organizations? I, I'd look at the Boston Celtics. I'd look at the San Antonio Spurs, uh, maybe OKC, Golden State. Seems like they're getting there. They have that stability from, from the top down, ownership, front office. And, and there's no better example of stability. Um, so I bring it up because Jeff made a great point about Jimmy Butler. Um, Jimmy Butler was a guy who went to community college. Uh, he played in the Portsmouth Invitational. He was a late first-round pick. Uh, he's an underdog with a chip on his shoulder, and he still has that, even though he's a max player and a star in the NBA. He still has that chip. Um, but, Bob, as you know, not every organization is equipped or empowered to handle that, that when a guy you know, bucks, to use an example, like a horse, when he bucks, um, some organizations let him run rough shot. Uh, my, he's not going to do that in Miami. Every, everybody knows that. Uh, you know, Pat's got control of it. Spolster's got control of it. Those guys have each other's back. There are no cracks. There are no gaps. And, and because of that, Jimmy loves it. They, they just let Jimmy be Jimmy. They don't try to rein him in. And that's why you see, you know, 40 points in game one and him dominating. Um, but as you guys know, there are 30 teams in the NBA. They are not all created equal from a culture ownership management perspective. Uh, Miami has one of the best. And I think you're manis- seeing uh, the results of that manifest itself now uh, through the first six games that he had played so far in the playoffs where they're 6-0. and up. I was just thinking uh, as you were speaking about this concept and phenomenon. Riley has been on both sides of this equation. When he coached in Los Angeles, he had a strong-willed super star executive above him uh, off whom he could bounce ideas or who could exert influence in certain ways uh, with Jerry West. So he's been on both. He's been both sides of this. He's, he's been the, the coach who has co- you know, coexisted or, or been influenced perhaps by the, the, the executive above him. And he's now, he's the cheese. He's the guy making, you know, uh, it's uh, very interesting. I don't know how many con- uh, equivalent circumstances in the history of this league has ever been anything like it. In so many ways, Wiley is one of the most important, intriguing figures in the history of this league. You know, there's no doubt, but that's just, just another aspect of it that never occurred to me until right then and there. I'll give you one more example, Bob, if I could, uh, because I I know both these guys very well, as do the two of you. And that's what's going on now with a team that will play in the late game tonight, uh, the L.A. Clippers. And and what Doc Rivers and Lawrence Frank have done, I worked with both both of them when I was with the Boston Celtics. And what they will both tell you is, you know, Doc, as you guys know, when he got there, uh, Lawrence had not arrived yet. And Doc was the head coach and president of basketball operations. And I think Doc wanted that at the time. But then, uh, as you know, something looks intriguing until you have that pressure and that response responsibility guys and in my opinion in today's NBA having done just the executive piece of it uh you know in in, in, in for one franchise or two to, I guess with the Celtics and Suns the job's a monster today as you guys know there's so much more to it than just picking players and showing up at games uh so I bring it up because I think Doc wanted both those jobs in fact I know he did and then when he was head coach and president said I can't do all that I can't do all this effectively on the flip side conversely Lawrence Frank had been a head coach with the New Jersey Nets and then with the Detroit Pistons. Um, so what Lawrence will tell you is, yeah, I've done Doc's job and he's done mine. Uh, mm-hmm. And so there's that mutual respect. Pat Riley has done Eric Spolster's job. He knows how difficult it is. And uh, I think that's why there's probably a decent chance that those two teams, the Miami Heat and LA Clippers, meet in the NBA Finals. So are, are you buying uh, the Celtics without Gordon Hayward um, getting to the NBA Finals? Because I I don't know if Gordon's going to be ready for the next series even at this point. I'm not sure. I mean, I know the ankle injury was pretty significant. Um, And and obviously his, his wife also is due at some point here in the next couple of weeks. So, you know, even if they dispatch of of Toronto in four or five, um, he may not be around. And honestly, the way they're playing right now, they, they look like they could beat anybody in the East, at least. Are, Are you buying Tatum? Uh, Jalen Brown and, and Kemba and now the resurgent Time Lord can uh, can can <laughs> knock off uh, Toronto and then get past either Miami or Milwaukee. Yeah, I think Boston has a, as good a chance as any team to come out of the Eastern Conference, Jeff, even without Gordon Hayward. And, and you mentioned, you know, some of the best players. Uh, Jason Tatum is emerging into a superstar. Um, one, one question I, w- I want to ask Bob after this is, uh, you know, where Tatum will end up on the Celtics all-time scoring list? Because personally, I think he might be at the top. Um, but, you know, so you, you know what you're going to get from him. He's that good at a young age. Uh, Kemba Walker is experienced. He struggled some, obviously, in game two. 
especially early in that game. Uh, but, but, you know, it's a very good proven player overall. And, and Jalen Brown, uh, the difference for me, Jeff, are, are the emergence of, um, you know, the, the X factors, the guys you don't expect a whole lot from. Marcus Smart, the way he shot the ball so far in this series. Uh, Brad Wanamaker, uh, you, you know, some of the impact he's had. And then you mentioned Robert Williams. A ton of credit goes to him individually. Uh, but also I give a lot of credit to Brad Stevens um, because Scalabrini and I talked about it on our, on our show. My guess is Nick Nurse and the staff in Toronto prior to game one said, as soon as Cantor's in the game, we're going to attack him, put him in pick and rolls. Well, what did Brad Stevens do? He never put Cantor in the game. He hasn't played a minute through the first two games of the series. And Robert Williams has had a huge impact off the Celtics bench. And, and Cantor did have an impact in the first series. And, and, and that just is a tribute to the roster assembly. That, and, and also, he, he may be – I don't think he's an actor. I think he's a sincere person. He looks joyful on the bench. When the, every time you, the, 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 you see him, as a, he's a major rah-rah cheerleader on that bench, which I, I, which I admire. Um, I, you asked me about Tatum. Um, first of all, I am only in this duo here, the, 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 the junior member of the fan club, because Mr. Goodman is the president. <laughs> of the local chapter of the Jason Tatum fan club. And he's been touting Jason Tatum as long as we've been together on this podcast. And, and I'm sure long before, uh, and I didn't need to be convinced, but I don't have the same degree of fervor that, that, that Jeff has. Um, I love him. I loved him. I loved the pick at the time. I, uh, you know, this, it, it he's entered an organization. That's an organization filled with, you know, Mount Rushmore kind of players. And, and so, um, you know, when you even it, even the thought of putting him in a discussion down the road with a McHale, a Bird, and a McHale, uh, or Pierce, or 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 Garnett was four or five years is is a, a, a compliment. He has a chance to go out, obviously, as one of the all-time Celtic greats and, and, and an NBA perennial All-Star. Um, uh, and and he's only getting better before our very eyes. Um, and but I, I I yield, believe me, to Mr. Goodman. He 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 ha- he was there first. <laughs> Listen, the, the big thing, I tweeted this the other night. Uh, I, I think everything, every part of his game has gotten better. Obviously, his perimeter shot um, is one of the bigger things because he really didn't shoot it well, and I, I rip on him all the time um, in college. He wasn't, he wasn't a great three-point shooter, but he worked. He worked with Jalen, and I think it was Micah Shrewsbury all the time. I think those guys, when Micah was here before he went back to college, um, those three were – and Mikey used to tell me all the time, like, these guys work. And I was worried about Jalen because of all the other stuff, right? All his other interests and Harvard and everything. I was like, eh, is he going to put everything he's got in the – Fatherhood. Right? Everything. Right, everything for Jalen. So, Tatum – Oh, uh, oh yeah, and I'm going yeah. well, to – Jason. He had more interests outside. Oh, I worried about okay. that. I, 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 I definitely worried about that. Is he going to be serious enough? Well, he's answered the question. But I was with you. I, I, he had me worried. When I heard about all his credentials intellectually, I said, you know, I, I hope he's not too smart for this. I hope he wants to be right. a bit right. And he wants to take it, you know, and, and, and be 24-7. With, with, with Tatum, I think the biggest thing that we haven't seen in this game, and, and I saw it early in, in his career, like sophomore, junior, or high school, is he can really pass the ball. And, and the game is slowing down. I think, you know, early on in his career, it was shooter, shooter, shooter. That's what he is, right? The first half of his, his rookie year, before Kyrie got hurt, they stuck him in the corner, and he was just literally on the three-point line standing there. And then Kyrie got hurt. Gordon got hurt. It, that was the difference, really. Those guys getting hurt thrust Tatum and Jalen into bigger roles. Um, but I think with Tatum, I, I tweeted the other night, he's just got to stop whining so much about yeah. the officials. No, that is it, a bit technical. It's out of control. And, and, and I don't think, again, I think you, you build up, and you know this, Ryan, you build up a reputation in this league, like Perk did, right? Every time Perk uh, fouled somebody, what did he do? He had this scowl, right? Like he would look like he never – him and like DeMarcus Cousins, they never foul anybody, ever. And eventually the refs are like, screw it. You know what? Like I'm going to get you every single time. I don't like you. I don't like dealing with it. And Jason's the nicest kid in the world and the softest spoken kid off the court you can imagine. And I've had several conversations with him about it. And he just said, like, I can't help myself at the time. I can't do it. And other people in the organization have talked to him, and he still can't get it. He's got to mature to where instead of flailing his arms and, and doing all that, go up to the rep, say it quietly, pat him on the back, and, and, and then maybe he'll get that call next time. I got to ask Ryan while we have him about uh, somebody. Do you feel like a proud papa about Devin Booker? 
It's to some extent you do, Bob. And, and that was, um, you know, one of the fun things to watch him grow and especially in the bubble. You know, obviously I'm not with the team anymore, but to, to watch him do what he did, to watch the team do what they did, where a lot of people, myself included, wondered whether they should even be there. You know, it'd be a lot easier, in my opinion, to draw a line with teams who were within four games of the eight seed uh, and not include Phoenix and Washington. You know, been a nice round number with 20 teams uh, and they, they expanded it to 22 and you say well you know what happens if Phoenix or Washington lose their first couple games and that's going to be a complete waste of time that is what happened with the Wizards obviously that's not what happened with Phoenix Phoenix did the opposite of that and, and got as much out of the bubble experience as any team in my opinion other than the team that wins the championship I think nobody benefited more from it and took better advantage of it than the Phoenix Suns did um, so yeah I'm really really happy for him Bob really proud of him um, you know it, it's uh, it's funny people ask you about like they ask me you know did you see this coming I said well when he came off the bench in Kentucky and was the sixth man and you know backed up the Harrison twins and was a catch and shoot player uh no I did not see him being up there with LeBron James Carmelo Anthony Kevin Durant as far as you know the youngest all-time scores but um you know there's been a lot of turnover in Devin's career I was certainly responsible for some of that and he, he he's you know, persevered. He's overcome all of that. And, um, you know, that's one of the other neat things. And Jeff brought it up. I, I was actually thinking of, of Booker when he mentioned Tatum in the passing, um, because I, I think that's the evolution of Booker's game. And that's what Jeff is seeing is kind of the next step for Tatum. Um, because people who don't watch Devin closely say, oh, you know, a gunner, an empty calorie scorer. He is not, guys. He is a complete offensive basketball player who can score, he can dribble, he can pass, he can shoot, he can be you every which way offensively. And I think that's why he'll be a, you know, perennial all star probably headed to the Hall of Fame someday. And uh, from the Celtics perspective, uh, I feel the same way about Jason Tatum. I think he's just that good. And my final point on this, um, and I want to get, you know, your guys' opinion on this is, um, Bob, I wasn't saying that Tatum was necessarily going to be the best player in Celtics history. Obviously, that's, you know, that's uh, uh, in my opinion, Bill Russell is that. But uh, I bring it up because with the way the game is played today, with the advantages to the offensive player and the three-point shot and what Jason Tatum is doing at his age, I wouldn't be surprised if he is able to pass uh, Paul Pierce, who is number two, and John Havlicek, who is number one, on the all-time scoring leaders list in Celtics history uh, because of the way the game is played, uh, but also because he is just that good at a young age. This presumes he stays long enough with the team, too. We don't know what the future right. lies in, in that regard. You know, you and I don't have to tell you, you know, that, that, uh, <laughs> that the world is not is, – not it's a very volatile world in the sports in terms of contracts and situations and free agency and 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 other circumstances that dictate decisions so yeah if he were to stay around long enough he would i think he will wind up in that discussion i could see him averaging 27 28 a game some year and you know and getting up in that discussion i mean he's he's on the 23 4 range now right so he'll get, and he's and he's only getting better. it's amazing all these guys let's talk about booker he's 23 i believe uh tatum's 22 I believe uh, the gray beard player on the Celtics is 26. Is that what Marcus is? He's either 25 or six. He's the, he's the, he's the longest tenured guy. It's just the precociousness. I'm, I'm watching last night. We talked about we were in Miami hero is 20, you know, and, and uh, he, he looks 15 and you know, that's the world we're living in. But uh, so it's just, it's amazing. I, I want to throw the, uh, the three point shot. Um, it's dominance. It, it's complete. I'm just asking you. Um, Bob, Bob, Bob cannot get away it? from the, the three-point shot. Bob wants to go yeah. back to the old days. He you know, to I'm just saying, to Toronto is 21 for 80 in these first two games, okay? Yeah. You know, I, it, 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 sometimes it looks farcical. I mean, but is there anybody that laments this that you know of in the business, or is everybody at least just to say, it is the way it is, it ain't going to change, uh, we're never going to get a better balance. It's going to be more and more three-point centric. Is that do I have to resign myself to that? You do, Bob. Yeah, oh, you, you do because, well, because <laughs> look, I, I've studied this. You know, obviously at a fairly high level for fifteen plus years between the the Celtics and Suns front offices, and when you do have all the information and you have the numbers, it's hard to make an argument that you should not do it or you should completely disregard it. Let, let me put it that way. Now, Bob, in my personal opinion, uh, I don't like what Houston does. I think they take it to an extreme, and I think that actually makes them easier to defend because you know they're not going to shoot for mid-range, right? So you try to take away three-point shots or you meet them at the restricted area, at the basket. That's where they're going to shoot from, and you know that. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I look at analytically more like what um, Golden State has done you know, where, I mean, it helps that they had three of the all-time great shooters with Curry, Thompson, and Durant when he was there. But, um, you know, they shot a lot of threes, but they also shot a lot of mid-range. They got to the basket, 
it was unguardable. Like they had it, you know, coming from every which way. And I think that makes it harder to guard defensively, which is why um, personally, some of it, obviously it ultimately is dependent on talent. But I think with what the Rockets are doing, there is a ceiling and there are some limitations to that where the teams have a little more variance and a little more variety while still embracing the three-point shot. Uh, in my opinion, that's the way to win in the modern NBA. All right. Well, with that, with that, uh, we are going to uh, we're going to let Ryan go. How about this, Bob? Uh, Ryan is is from his christening. He's turning forty soon. Yeah, I, I I'm aware of that. Forty. I, I Jeff, actually, my Wikipedia page is wrong. Not, I don't think Wikipedia has ever been really? wrong before, but I actually am forty. I turned forty last <laughs> oh, they're year. Wrong. How do yeah. you how do you not correct that somehow? Because <laughs> I, I don't care. You know, you guys know what it's like to be a pseudo public figure these days. Uh, you know, people are going to say and write whatever. I just I just ignore that stuff. No, I, I just, just want to say it was a hell of a christening. What do you remember? What do you remember about that christening, Bob? I do remember a I actually remember a conversation I had with John Powers about about something that was going on at the time that's all i just remember it but i i swear to god folks i'm not making this up i was at this this gentleman's christening so you know there you go i can't i can't run away from that uh, genealogical fact <laughs> jeff jeff and bob can i tell one more quick story before i run yeah. Uh, because Bob, because Bob Ryan, obviously anybody who watches this or listens to your podcast knows he is Mr. Basketball and he is worldwide. And, and, and keep in mind, again, that I grew up within a couple miles of Bob and he worked you know, right next to my dad in the same cubicle. And I bring this up, guys, because my first international scouting assignment of my career was in 2006. I was 26 years old, Jeff, and I went to Tokyo, Japan for the 2006 Basketball World Championships. And there were a few other executives who took me under their wing. You know, I was a young guy. I had no idea what I was doing or where to go or what to do. And I bring this up because we're in Japan. You know, nobody speaks English. We're the few American guys uh, staying at the Renaissance Hotel in the Ginza Tobu District. And, and Jeff, one, one night, there was an off night, you know, a gap between games. This tends to happen in FIBA plays. Uh, we go down to the lobby bar to have a drink. Who is at the lobby bar in Tokyo, Japan, uh, having a Coke, but Bob Ryan. So, so I traveled around the world, literally around the world, from, from Hingham, Massachusetts to Tokyo, Japan. I go to the hotel lobby bar, and there's Bob Ryan. He was great. He came over. You know, we had a few drinks, told some stories. Uh, but, but for anybody who didn't know, especially your younger viewers and listeners, he is the godfather of basketball, and that is not just limited to the United States. Nice of you to say that. Thank you. What I remember most about Tokyo is losing to Greece. <laughs> yeah, in the semifinal. Oh, losing yeah, to the, Greece. Theo Papalukas put on a pick-and-roll clinic. Yeah. Go back and watch the right. film of that game. A baby Shaq. Yep. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad we could do this for both of you guys as much as anything else, uh, for you to see each other in this, uh, in this time. Listen, we got to let you go because you, you need a nap. You need uh, – <laughs> before you see Scal again, I mean, you better get some sleep or something. I don't know how you do this. <laughs> I, I recover and recharge through the day and then we come back late at night and have some juice from the games hopefully we get two two more good ones tonight yeah all right well listen thanks for doing this ryan, thanks, ryan. Hope all is well and uh you're doing a good job you, you've come a long way in your in your short time with the media you have come a long way i think you're uh you're, you're bound for for media look at the starter. jeans look at the jeans it, that is true i mean you listen i want to say something i want to pay to your brother is as good as anyone has ever done. He, he is not being given his due respect by his employers. I'm sorry. He's as, no one is any better than Sean McDonough. Nobody. Nobody. And he's funny as shit. That's the other part with, <laughs> with Sean. Like, man, you, you hang out with in I mean, you know, but like the dude, just his personality, it, it, the sarcasm level oh. is beyond a 10. <laughs> Runs in the family. We've come from a long line of wise asses, as Bob knows as well as anybody. <laughs> Listen, thanks again, man. Thanks again. Be safe out there, and we'll talk soon. Thanks for having me, guys. Always great yeah. seeing you, too.